Dan Winter has been working in the field of consciousness study for over 50 years. In the 1970s and 80s, he began to work with some of the pioneers in consciousness studies. And more recently, he's worked with some of the, those witnesses and contactees that claim to have been able to teleport and travel to space arcs such as Jean-Charles Moyen, empirically verifying that their brain waves behave in ways that indicate that they have these special abilities such as teleportation. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, welcome, Dan, to Exopolitics Today. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here with the godfather of ET history. <laughs> delighted. <laughs> yes, well, you have quite a history. I mean, you've been around since the 1970s and 80s working with some of the pioneers in the field of consciousness studies, some of the people that really put this field on the map. So how did you get interested in that? And I mean, did it begin for you at university? Yeah, well, I'm not as old as I look, or I was born very young, one of the two. <laughs> but uh, no, so I studied psychophysiology and biofeedback in graduate school, University of Detroit. Uh, Albert Axe was my mentor. So I was a polygraph builder, and physics of consciousness was in my mind even then. And then I did the Gurdjieff School Sacred Gymnastics. It's a colorful story. Then I was a systems analyst at IBM. At that time, actually, I knew Marcel Vogel. And that, that's actually how it kind of started, because I became a teacher on the international psychotronics circuit. And it was in that circuit that I came to know uh, Puharic and uh, Vogel quite well and Bentoff uh, indirectly. So, you know, I was kind of the, I guess they said the, the Forrest Gump of the physics of consciousness movement. We had uh, gatherings in Toronto and, and at Harvard and Bill Tiller was there and all the grandfathers. So yeah, it's a colorful story. <laughs> yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, uh, Andrea Puharic is famous or infamous depending on your perspective. So, you know, what do you know of him? How much did you get to kind of meet with him? Did you get to see his lab nine up there in, Os or I think it's Osserich, New York? Ossining, ossining. Um, well, at that time, I was working in Ben Bentoff's lab, actually, as many people know, the, wrote the book on the biomechanics of Kundalini, Stalking the Wild Pendulum, and he and I were very close. And in some ways, uh, Andrew Puharik was kind of the, I won't say nemesis of, but there was a conflict, actually. It's a bit of a colorful story. I believe they were, in some ways, on opposite sides of the Arab-Israeli war, actually. And uh, so... Bentoff claimed that uh, Puharik's spirit guides, that's right, that's Bentoff's. Uh, and so I was actually doing the uh, polygraph building with Bentoff as I was a polygraph electrical engineer. And so we measured Kundalini with the capacitive accelerometer, which is basically the plates of a capacitor with measure micro, micro motion. Now that, that leads me to the story of Puharik because um, few people know, but that one of the ways in which Puharik began to hear, quote unquote, the clairaudience, and I became a bit clairaudient a little later on too, after much Kundalini, but the re reason he began to hear had to do with the fact that he was uh, developing technologies for enabling deaf people to hear, specifically using uh, a 
it's called a piezoelectric, it's a little vibrator that when it's directly bone coupled, uh, and there's even bone conduction speakers now on headphones that are very common. That's Andrea, that's right. Uh, and so uh, there is a relationship to his lifetime study on bone conduction in the ears and the frequency signature, which would enable deaf people to hear and the onset of the Claire audience, which was directly related to the day he said, oh, somebody named Tom is calling. <laughs> and later he found it was Atum. And later he found out that was basically Enki and uh, started to tell him the story of the nine. And, and Bentoff was very skeptical initially of those communications, really. Uh, and there, there were problems. You know, I am fully convinced. In fact, I had around that time written my book on the life of Enki, goldenmean.info slash Enki. So I was deep in the study of that history many years ago. Um, and until today, when Elena Danan says he's back, and I find it wonderful that the stories fit together from uh, Puharic and then from many years of my work with Anton Parks, and we do one of the websites on his history of Anki up to the present with uh, Elena Danan. And I feel strongly that the beauty is that those history stories fit together. But we were, we were back at the story of Puharic and how then he met Phyllis Schlemmer and how that actually became the Star Wars Deep Space Nine. Uh, the, the, what uh, Puharic learned was that, um, that this group called the Nine was, um, was, as Elena now says, kind of the heroes of history. And uh, Puharic learned that, for example, the, the plasma vortex which was associated with the nine and became the series Deep Space Nine was actually itself intelligent and aware. And these plasma entities that Puharic was communicating with were his lifetime, in some ways, problem because the concept of astral hygiene was difficult for him. And I don't know where you want to go with that conversation, but I can tell you it's a... Yeah, well, let's kind of like, um, you know, look a little bit at that because I think one of the things that really distinguished the work of uh, Andrea Poharic was that uh, he was a, um, a well, I, I guess he was a medical doctor. Uh, he had, he was able to develop certain protocols for being able to measure how uh, certain abilities, psychic abilities, such as telepathy were enhanced through a Faraday cage. And so he would have people go inside of this Faraday cage and he would uh, see how well the Faraday cage would kind of like ensure that psych, I mean, psychic hygiene, as you say, you know, because I think there's a lot of people today that are channeling entities that may be a, a kind of like electronic uh, interference from some lower astral entities, whereas Paharic, through using the Faraday cage, believed that he enhanced the psychic's abilities to be able to connect and channel these high dimensional forces such as the nine. So yeah, elaborate on that, that the Faraday cage, psychic hygiene, yeah, uh, how that works. Well, my experience at that time is I knew the people who were studying Ingo Swan, who's very famous here. And he uh, famously lit a thermistor, lit a flame with his mind at a distance through a Faraday cage. And that of course set us onto the study which became flameinmind.com, which is how we measured Jean-Charles Moyen's brainwaves. And specifically, we now know that the brainwave frequency signature, 
uh, you can see it at flameandmind.com, which is a golden ratio cascade from alpha to gamma, which identified when John Charles Moyen was able to, to bilocate, um, produces something called a longitudinal wave uh, compressional, which at that time was often called scalar. And the key point here is that the pattern of longitudinal waves, sometimes called longitudinal interferometry, will specifically go through a Faraday cage, which is exactly the way that Ingo Swann lit that flame with his mind at a distance, actually. It's a compression. So the interferometry of the compressional wave will go through a Faraday cage, but the transverse, which is most of our communication, which is most of our electrosmog, will not. So that's an introduction to a physics here, which is that when you're able to connect with this, it's called a longitudinal pattern, it's basically the earth grid because it's fractal, actually. And as we know, um, when Karakov famously measured the military quality telepathy of Kozirev, the nodes on which they did it were those longitudinal nodes that, where the magnetic lines cross and you get this compressional node. And that is where telepathy is enabled and specifically also where the Faraday cage enabled, enabled people to have telepathy with less electrosmog in them. Okay, so, all right. So that does confirm that uh, the Faraday cage can ensure a certain degree of kind of psychic hygiene just uh, to keep out interference, that lower level interference, well, um, it, kind of like a psychic smog, as you call yeah, it. But we would want to caution here that the, the goal actually is not to isolate yourself. The goal is to embed yourself. So obviously, if you don't have a problem with electrosmog in transverse waves, namely you happen to have the privilege of living in nature, then you can embed yourself in the Schumann harmonics, which are something called a phase conjugate pump wave. It's it's a cascade that looks like a caduceus of frequencies, the Schumann cascade. And that's, for example, the way pyramids make a global wireless power grid because it pump compresses. And it's also the way the crystal became warp power. It's all based on that wave shape that looks like a caduceus. And that Schumann harmonic cascade is available to you mostly when you're not in metal buildings. And that is really optimized DNA radio. That is the true physics of telepathy. So uh, okay, so uh, so just to kind of like bring it down to a basic level for people to understand, when psychics or others trying to kind of connect with higher dimensional forces are out in nature, then the Schumann resonance that uh, is dominant in that natural environment, like enhances one's ability Absolutely. to be able to make that communication. Absolutely. Whereas if you're in a city or in an urban environment, there's a lot of kind of electrical smog or psychic smog because of others, then a Faraday cage actually does help. It can in that circumstance. Yes, yes. But in general, what's called a temple, it, it embeds you in a bath of the Schumann harmonics. And that is DNA radio perfected because it enables the compression cascade that pushes out the longitudinal and the longitudinal array is the DNA radio, basically. Okay, maybe you should explain what is a, com a compression cascade, and 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 I in a sense maybe uh, this is where pyramids come in. I mean, uh, exactly. it, like the, the 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 geometry of a pyramid. Yeah. I mean, and I know that the, the pyramids enhance psychic abilities and consciousness. So you know, how does this compression wave work? Well, how does the pyramid produce a kind of compression wave? Compression wave, as, as you define or explain it, to enhance consciousness. Well. It begins with the concept of non-destructive charge collapse, which is implosion of charge. 
And this is the title of my newest book, uh, Planck Fire, Charge Collapse, Cause of Gravity and Consciousness. And, and uh, basically, if you take something called the Planck length and time, which is the musical key signature of every wave in physics, and you simply multiply by golden ratio, you get a cascade. And that cascade predicts virtually exactly the Schumann harmonics, the only two frequencies of color that make photosynthesis, and the brainwave frequencies of bliss and all kinds of beautiful stuff. It's called negentropy. So that charge collapse perfected creates a wave shape that looks like a caduceus. It's Hermes, the designer of the pyramids, you know, he would have probably used that. And in physics today, it's called phase conjugation, that caduceus cascade wave. And that is a pump wave. And so pyramids, because the diameter the height ratio is golden ratio, and the pyramids are piezo. Piezo just means that a mechanical stricture will be converted to a voltage. It's also key to the crystal that became the warp drive. <laughs> so this is a phase conjugate pump wave, whether it's on a pyramid or a warp drive crystal. And that cascade will push the compression waves to center implosively. And when charge waves converge towards center, in what's called conjugation, visualize this caduceus, that compression efficiently converts the transverse up and down inertia waves, transverse EMF, which are, in, are not as coherent, and it converts the transverse electromagnetic. Transverse is the portion of the electromagnetic wave which is oscillating perpendicular to the direction of travel versus the longitudinal wave, formerly called scalar, which is a compression wave, where the compression is moving parallel to the direction of propagation. And it is only that compressional or scalar or longitudinal component which can implode at center. And when it does implode at center, it spits out a coherent longitudinal wave which is directional. And that is what a gravity wave is made of as Tom Bearden proved by equation in his book, Gravito Ball. Okay, uh, I thought maybe what we could do is, sh is show a, Good. A, a, a principle of, um, uh, Victor Schelberger's Excellent. implosion, and, and maybe you can explain how this works. I mean, just, just to explain the, the, the principle of, of implosive sure. force. Sure. Thank you for getting the slides ready. Then I won't have to. It's all good. <laughs> no. So this is a model, for example, not just of Victor Schauberger. In Victor Schauberger's case, this water vortex was what's called piezoelectrically doped with rock powders like quartz, which are piezo. And that meant that the compression wave would make a voltage. And there was a voltage difference between the widest and the narrowest part, which is simply a difference in electrical pressure. And that's when Hitler wrote him a check for building a generator, actually, made power from gravity. But even more importantly, that difference of pressure, that convergence down towards center, that implosion, produces what's called a longitudinal wave at the bottom tip, which is directional, which is why these things floated. And of course, if you were doing it with an iron powder doped mercury called Vimana Nazi Bell, you get a whole lot more gravity. But it's all based on knowing how a vortex makes gravity. And it starts with knowing how, why an object falls to the ground because the vortex converts the charge inertia from transverse to longitudinal at the foci. And that directional emitted longitudinal EMF is the stuff of gravity waves, absolutely. Okay, maybe another way of illustrating this is to kind of look at the difference between implosion versus explosion, and and certainly uh, this this was very important during the Second World War. Yes. So uh, yeah, just explain how energy 
can be generated uh, either through implosive or explosive uh, technologies. It's even more fun using your slides than mine. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> no, no, but it's real. In fact, the first uh, nuclear device was called implosion because the phone on wave, which is longitudinal, had to be symmetric from the devices igniting around the periphery. And that actually made centripetal force, which was sufficient to generate critical mass. And notably, at those longitudinal cross points on the Earth, the compression wave, critical mass is reduced measurably. So implosion versus explosion has a lot of lessons for nuclear scientists. For example, if you design an implosive capacitor, you can contain radioactivity, the primary purpose of the Ark of the Covenant. But for the, for the metaphor here, implosion versus exp explosion, to bring this to, as you would obviously wish, to the general audience, think of human bliss process. Human bliss process, like when Jean Charles Moyen can bilocate, that the rate. No, let, let's let's make it let's make it more simple. Let's make it more simple. You know, you're a guy. You see a really attractive woman. How does this implosive? Uh, process work. Well, actually, that's how I started building polygraphs at the University of Detroit. When I saw what Playboy magazine did to his GSR, his finger resistance, that's what started my career, I'll have to say. And I can tell you exactly that the resistance decreased and did not increase when he saw Playboy magazine. <laughs> and it's, it's actually true that the, the process of having some kind of bliss process, compression always precedes radiance. Implosion precedes uh, explosion when it's sustainable. It's to think about it, you know, a rose couldn't unpack unless it learned to pack perfectly first. And that's exactly what happens in your aura. It, and this is not new information. Almost every physicist agrees that charge collapse is a cause of gravity. Of course, they don't have a clue of the cause of charge collapse until my new book. But almost every psychologist well, uh, okay, let, let's back up there. What is charge collapse? Charge collapse is charge implosion. Non-destructive charge collapse was Einstein's name for the unified field solution, actually, and his name for the cause of gravity, which he didn't know why an object falls to the ground. And he didn't figure it out because he didn't know what a fractal field which is, which is Planck times Golden Ratio. And that is the solution. The, the fun part is not only is that the cause of gravity, but it's the cause of consciousness directly. Most you know, psychologists studying the physics of consciousness now agree that consciousness is caused by charge collapse. They all agree. And, but again, none of them know the cause of charge collapse. I so say consciousness, charge collapse, implosion, implosion. It's all the same. Uh, same thing. There, there, are, there are symmetries between these. Well, um, it's, it's virtually identical. And that's the point. So, so when charge collapses perfectly, Einstein's mystery was, well, where does the charge go out through center? It's got to go through somewhere. He didn't know that the longitudinal wave was the way through the speed of light. And that's been measured, by the way. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's, let's again try and kind of like bring this down to simple terms so people can understand. Okay. If, you know, you're sitting in a room and you're trying to meditate. And you're trying to meditate in a, on a single idea or you're trying to meditate, you know, on silence. Okay. So you're trying to meditate on silence. So, you know, is this – so as you go into the silence of the moment – is, is, that, is that an example of, of like uh, this uh, charge collapse where consciousness so. kind of focuses yeah. uh, in this implosive way as opposed to our normal way of operating is like our mind is going out here thinking about, oh, you know, I've got that appointment tomorrow. Oh, yeah, I've got to get ready for dinner tonight. Oh, yeah, I wonder what's going to be showing on the movies uh, tomorrow and so forth. Your mind goes out in all of these places. That's, 
this kind of explosive yeah. consciousness, which is very disruptive, whereas in terms of reaching higher dimensional uh, states of being, you, you've got to silence the mining and bring it down to that kind of like, is, is that the charge collapse? Is that an example? Oh, exactly. Well described, yes. Now, if you wanted to do the the physics of that in more detail, that was Bentoff's lifetime, actually, called the biophysics of Kundalini. So if you take how the low frequencies of heart, called heart rate variability in the breath, they would then entrain the spine liquid pump. And the spine liquid pump, the sacrocranial harmonics, the, the tidal waves they're called, uh, they are actually fitting that equation perfectly, Planck times golden ratio. For example, the Mayer wave 0.1 hertz uh, the most important frequency in the blood. So those low frequencies motorize the pine, spine liquid pump, as you say, coming to the stillness where the charge collapse implosion becomes literally dense, feels like lightning in the spine liquid pump. And that measurably drives the ventricle liquid horns in the brain. And uh, Bentos genius was how to measure that, which again is creating a still point. So the still point here, the still point here, the still point here, here, those are the implosion points of charge collapse. And if you can ride the center of that lightning bolt without getting toasted. <laughs> and the, you see, the thing is, this level of information density, it's sort of like when Daniel Brinkley died twice in lightning. <laughs> if you can inhabit a lightning bolt, the movie Powder, that's what that stillness is. Because the reason is because when you get to that compression point, it, it's called impedance matching. You hit the wave node of compression of longitudinal interferometry. And that still point, that's, that's DNA radio, the mind of God, heaven, all the fun names for that, the collective unconscious. And your ability to couple with that still point and connect with that radio depends on you being able to inhabit that still lightning bolt, which is your mind focusing on pure principle, clearly. Okay. When you talked about spine liquid spinal yeah. liquid pump. I mean, you're talking about Kundalini rising? I mean, Absolutely, yes. yes. Yeah. So, the, so just to explain how that, how that works. I mean, you know, we have the kind of metaphysical ideas uh, you know, from India and elsewhere where, you know, the, the Kundalini kind of like ascends from the root chakra up through exactly. the other chakras up to, through to the third eye or then up through the crown if you're, if you're an ascended master. So yeah, how, how does that work? And, and of course, you were talking about the caduceus and all of that. Exactly. So yes. yeah, just explain all of that. So if you extend that caduceus, golden ratio times Planck, every single point from the breath low frequency to the spine liquid low frequencies to the brainwave frequencies to the Schumann harmonics, every point on that cascade of oscillators all fits golden ratio towards Planck, which is implosive charge collapse. Mechanically, again, this is Bentov's life, and I was in his lab many times, what happens is the spine liquid pump really sucks, and <laughs> it does. It implodes, and the suction at the base draws up, in, in one sense, the sexual juices, the creative juices, and that, that means that out the crown come the, the, the serpent brain feeds the bird brain, the mouth of the amygdala is the mouth of that pump, come the, the, the finest nutrients of human bliss, and the sweet nectar drips at the base of the tongue, and you, the top of your head feels like a torch that won't go out. <laughs> I mean, that's a basic intro to Kundalini. But it's definitely a charge implosion and a phase conjugate pump wave for sure. And we have many documentaries on the biophysics of Kundalini, goldenmean.info slash Kundalini. And you can see the equations in the films we've made about that. So I'm sort of the, the incarnation of Bentoff's work at this time on the planet. <laughs> okay, so, the, so there's, there's the Conducius. And so... Exactly. 
Yes. Yeah, so just ex just explain yeah, that again. Yeah, thank you. Well, that, see that. So that's essentially the serpent feeding the eagle. Quetzalcoatl returns, who happens to be so thanky. But so the the reptilian brain right there at the mouth of the snake, called amygdala, to tower, is spitting out these sweet nutrients because of the pumping action of the sacrocranial mechanics. Remember, Upledger proved that if your spine liquid is pumping, it is clinically impossible to be depressed. And those harmonics fit the... And so that's that's dumping into the bird brain whose wings are the ventricle horns. And that's what Bentoff actually measured was that, and, and I did the equations for him actually, that the ringing heard in the ear by meditators, sometimes called sangreal, song in the blood, voices of ancestors, um, that the actual ringing you hear in your ear during bliss fit the equation. So he knew the low frequency of the spine were literally driving the rotation of the ventricle liquid horns. In, in common language, it's called getting horny. The sexual juices have been pumped upward and the, the ventricle horns will liquid, will crystallize in a phonon coherence and the wave is the technical, the wave propagation velocities equalize between the crystallizing liquid and the, liqui the liquefying crystal, the brain mass versus the ventricle liquids. And there's a very detailed physics of that, which basically means that you're making a, a cold flame in the center of your head that feels like your pineal is on fire. And if you can handle it, you know, it's very information dense, but it's also dangerous. Okay, so th thank you for clarifying that uh, the, the spinal uh, fluid pump action is this Kundalini rising uh, principle, and, and and of course that's very critical for being able to achieve these uh, higher states of consciousness. So um, I wanted to give a, an example, which I'm sure a lot of people are very intrigued by, that, that kind of re relates to this, and you know, something I think Victor Schauberger talked about, which was uh, you know how salmon um, are able to go upstream rivers to spawn. So, uh, you know, how is this working? Because clearly there's some kind of um, something that they're, they're generating uh, through, is it through their consciousness, through their vibration, through their spinning? How are, how are salmon able to go up rivers? Well, it's a beautiful question. Uh, one basic uh, recognition here is that a healthy river, which is literally a flow form, has still points. And those still points are like steps on a ladder. And fish will know about the steps on the ladder very well, which is what a longitudinal node is in EMF as well. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is there's a kind of negative resistance possible in the hydrodynamics of the fish scale. Uh, so there's a, and also by the way, uh, the water has to be quasi superconductive. If you put water two degrees warmer just upstream, all the fish will be washed down. They won't make it up. So there's, there's some very interesting physics there. Okay, so essentially uh, you've got the water flow coming down river, so there's a pressure caused by the water, but the fish are somehow able to identify these energetic well, remember, spots in the river. Yeah, the healthy river has a braiding action, and that braiding action is giving the water discipline, the book Sensitive Chaos, for example. That's why the river won't flood if it's braiding, and that was... Schauberger's lifetime work was to build those deflectors in the water, in the so river. So when you say make... braiding, are you saying like the, the water kind of flowing in a braid action? If you ever saw a flow form is, so the, the braiding action is a cascade of slip knots, just like braiding your lover's ponytail, actually. It's a perfect metaphor. Uh, 
And that braiding action is what makes the river water strong. Yeah, there's a little braiding in there as well. But he used uh, deflector ducts alternately spaced on the river to cause the river to braid. And that, and that in, in natural rivers, of course, they do that naturally. Uh, and that's what a flow form is. And that, that braiding action then produces still points in the flow, literally longitudinal nodes, compressional nodes. And that's a ladder for the fish to climb upriver. That's one aspect of this. And the other aspect is obviously the hydrodynamics of the, of the fish scales, which are literally have a negative resistance. Okay. Well, something you briefly mentioned, and I thought it'd be worth uh, just getting you to uh, elaborate a little bit on, was uh, the, the Nazi bell exper experiments, where uh, the Nazis were, were focusing on th these principles of implosion and trying to harness that for uh, developing free energy, anti-gravity effects and so forth. And of course, the Allies were working on the explosive principle yeah, that was exactly. used for, for, the, for nuclear weapons. So, yeah, tell us a little bit more about this, uh, the Nazi bell, the implosive principle, and, and how that could actually impact space-time. Well, you know that um, mercury vortex was used in many pyramids uh, to make it actually as a lens for the piezo function. Uh, but then in the Vimana, uh, it was explicitly a counter-rotating mercury vortex in the, in the uh, Hanabu uh, was a study that began with the Vimana, actually. But they were using counter-rotating cylinders, and the mercury between them was, uh, quote-unquote, doped with a wetting agent that made a fine powder mercury soluble, and that's what made it red. And that also enabled... The flux, the magnetic flux density in the mercury to operate parallel to the uh, hydraulic inertia of the super uh, uh, specific gravity of the mercury itself. The combination then of the mechanical inertia of the vortex imploding plus the magnetic conjugation, and I invented magnetic phase conjugation, another long story with Elizabeth Rauscher, but when those converging lines of mechanical hydraulic pressure implode and magnetic conjugation implode at the center of that vortex, a very focused laser beam-like longitudinal compressional wave is spit out very directionally. And that's the way the Hanabu Nazi bell flew. Okay. All right. So, you know, with, with the, uh, the, the flight of the Nazi Hanabu or, or flying sources in, in general, uh, the, the kind of implosive principles or the anti-gravity principles that they operate on, um, if you're approaching a craft that operates with these principles, how dangerous can it be for you as an individual if, I don't know, if you don't have the right consciousness? Well, you know, from the galactic perspective, this is a crude mechanism of propulsion, although the Nazis used it for decades. They stuck it in submarines, obviously, in conquered series and a base on Mars. You know, I think uh, Tony Rodriguez and Johan Fritz, they all got it right. <laughs> but the advanced propulsion, this was called impulse power. The advanced propulsion is called warp drive, and it's far more elegant. And this impulse power, by contrast, uh, was uh, less sustainable, less controllable, and more dangerous. And there was, uh, in the time of the Nazis, a well-reported radioactive component, which was also very dangerous. So indeed, this is not the Cadillac, no. <laughs> well, um, I, I know, like, um, uh, one... My army uh, insider, JP, uh, he describes an incident uh, where he went uh, on a mission with uh, one other gentleman, a, a Asian gentleman, 
I think this was before he joined the military, and he described a craft, and this Asian gentleman got too close to the craft, and it just hurled him back. Yeah, and it, like it was like just this explosive force. He just a little, got a little bit too close to the craft. So, I mean, what is it that would cause that? Well, that is more like what Searle is doing. It's very simple, actually. A high enough DC voltage on a concave metallic surface, and that's capacitive implosion. And that definitely produced thrust. The controversy was whether you could do that in the vacuum, but now we know you can. So simple high DC voltage on a curved metal surface, the concave portion of it will be capacitively implosive, and that will definitely produce thrust. And again, that's not the Cadillac, but that's also very commonly used. And I'm sure that's what your friend was experiencing, virtually, a super high DC voltage producing implosive capacitance. Well, I asked this because uh, very recently, just a few days ago, uh, Tucker Carlson uh, did uh, an interview where he told a story about him being told by a, uh, a brain specialist from Stanford Research Institute that 11 years ago, uh, there over 100 um, Air Force uh, personnel had suffered serious brain injuries or death because they got too close to UFOs. So I just wanted to kind of like get your take on what is it that's happening here? Is it because they're just getting too close and that there's this kind of like electrical discharge that just like uh, hurls them at a tremendous velocity or, or does it have something to do with, with having the right consciousness and DNA to be able to get close to these ex um, uh, you know, very advanced technologies. Yeah, well, the high voltage DC discharge from a metal curve is just the beginning. The really efficient craft have a very dense longitudinal EMF propulsion and a very compressed longitudinal node. Just to give you an idea, in one of the famous Templar uh, centers at Sintra, called a cork monastery, there is a place where it was famous that the monks would go to that center, which is very longitudinal, and many of them would go nuts, actually. They would lose it. And so the, the compression of a strong longitudinal node, sometimes some people jokingly call it a mind meld with a vice-like grip with an Orion Queen mag. If the longitudinal compression is powerful enough, they even say in many cases humans will die in the presence of a Draco who has enough mind power. So to be able to inhabit really strong compression requires a, a great deal of inner strength. Right. So how would that inner strength uh, relate to consciousness and DNA? Well, the more you have inhabited compression, which in this case, for example, bliss, uh, the more your inner, for example, DNA, braid, geometry, and glandular conductivity would have been compressed to the point of conductivity. For example, after many years of Kundalini, I can feel magnetic lines at a distance fairly well. And so I became, in a sense, superconductive to that. So I can handle a certain amount of it. I'm not saying I'm advanced in this regard, but I know what, how the phenomena works. So as you evolve, I don't know if you heard about the day Johann Fritz uh, faced the the Orion Queen Mog, you know, the White Queen, most people would die in, in that degree of charge density. And it takes a great deal of uh, strength and evolution to be able to handle that kind of density. But on the other hand, uh, you know, you can tell 
how powerful a person is by how centripetal their aura is. And a very centripetal aura eventually will become crushing. It's very powerful. Well, what is what is a centripetal aura? What is a powerful well, centripetal aura? You know, when Bill Teller famously measured that focused human attention causes electric fields to compress in his book, Conscious Acts of Creation, he didn't have a clue why, but he did absolutely prove that focused human attention causes charge implosion. That has been proven. I'm the first one to explain how that works. So the non-destructive charge collapse tuned by Planck, for example, in brain waves of bliss, uh, enables the aura to become centripetal. And the more broad spectral, what you call next dimension, that harmonic cascade, the more implosive that can get. I mean, I don't think you answered the question. I mean, exactly <laughs> what is it that makes an aura powerful? It's charge implosion. It is centripetal force. It is the whirlpool vortex imploding, literally. And it is non-destructive charge collapse. There's many names for this, but it's very specific. It's well, the ability let me give you an example. I mean, it's something that people can understand, and maybe this will help you. I remember going uh, probably 20 years ago to an event involving this Indian guru, uh, Sri Chinmoy. And mm -hmm. uh, he was giving a lecture. And when I walked into that room, I could feel his aura from about 100 feet away. Excellent. He had such a powerful aura. Excellent. And that was because this this was an individual that was had something special that he had achieved through higher consciousness. You could feel that. It was a quality. It was, uh, it was very gentle, very beautiful, very expansive, but powerful. You could feel that. That's beautiful. So, beautiful. again, what, what is it that generate that feel? I mean, uh, I would say based on you know, my knowledge, my limited knowledge, I'm not a, I certainly don't have your decades of experience in consciousness studies, but I would say that this is... This is because this person had achieved this ability to be able to uh, generate uh, kundalini rising, opening up the pineal gland and be able to connect with higher consciousness so that that force going through him, I mean, what you call it, the, the, the liquid pumping action, okay, that goes up, that that generates this enormous auric field that people hundreds of feet away can, can yeah, feel that. I was there when they were drinking Muktananda's bathwater too. But I'm, I'm just going to make a guess that Sri Chimnoy is Sri Chimnoy. Um, that you know, it wasn't a super powerful mind in itself. Uh, a big part of what he achieved was literally the skill to have compassion. Would be my guess, because the physics of compassion, where the heart turns inside out recursively and implodes, you know, heart coherences. Another of our studies here, realheartcoherence.com. So it's actually more of a study in compassion and empathy than it is a study in, you know, brainwave physics. The classic example, when you watch a shaman steering a tornado and you ask, well, how did you do that? He says, oh, I ate the hoochah. And you say, what does that mean? He says, well, I ate, ate the anger of the tornado, which means I felt the pain. And the tornadoes have pain too, because where they bleed charge due to broken fractality defines pain. So if they're passing over a metal city, they are experiencing pain, definitely. So the, the reason empathy made that shaman the center of gravity of that tornado was the embedding due to compassion, literally. And so there's a whole story of the physics of the heart turning inside out. And, you know, yeah, beautiful story, beautiful. 
Okay, good. Well, compassion, empathy. I mean, those yep. are things that I think anyone can understand that uh, a yep. person who uh, is able to kind of like go deep into that compassion, empathy for others, that uh, they generate this enormous uh, auric field. And, and of course, I mean, Sri Chinmoy was able to do that. We, we can imagine that uh, historical figures like Jesus of Nazareth was able to do that, that he had that kind of... Um, compassion empathy for others and that's and that's what uh you know got him into trouble with the with the with the uh, church at the time that got so jealous of him you know getting so many quality uh, getting so many followers because people from hundreds of feet away or miles away could feel the yeah. aura coming from someone like yeah. jesus as opposed to the high priest whoever yeah. he was there in jerusalem who was like you know this this pedant spouting all of this biblical stuff and knowledge yeah. but you know no one could feel anything from his aura other than just you know just and there's a normal human ability there's another beautiful aspect of this which has to do with the physics is helpful i think is that you can't fall in love with an aluminum building because the charge can't implode there nor can you remote view inside from inside a aluminum box so what they say is don't try to sustain bliss inside of a metal building because you're imploding poison. And that has a deep meaning for here. You know, Luke Skywalker went down deep into nature and then he got the Jedi up, you know? So it, it is charge implosion and there's some very important physics to make it more possible. Okay. Well, I want to come back to this question about um, consciousness, DNA, and, and the ability to be able to interact with some of these uh, more advanced technologies. Now, uh, there's a book, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, by Radu Cinema, Transylvanian Sunrise, where he talks about um, this uh, R R Romanian operative by the name of Caesar Brad, who goes into this uh, underground chamber in in the Bujeji Mountains under the, 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 the Romanian Sphinx there that you see on the front cover, and uh, that as he uh, was part of a team going through this, they hit this frequency shield and others, other military personnel and operatives couldn't get through this frequency shield. But Caesar Brad had the genetics, had the DNA to be able to just kind of walk through this without being hurled back or hurt or stopped in some way. So, you know, again, just how does that consciousness and DNA interact with advanced technologies? Yeah, I, I knew Peter Moon a little bit and Preston Nichols quite a bit years ago in those circles. And I think those books are beautiful there and it's very useful. I mean, generally speaking, we know that uh, with recursive braid implosion in DNA, and we've measured that happens when you have heart coherence, for example. So the DNA mechanically braids and gets denser and then spits out this coherence in the longitudinal, which enables lucid dreaming called having a soul. And so that creates longitudinal coherence, which is then uh, conductive to conductive to what would be what I would call longitudinal interferometry. The longitudinal field has specific nodes. For example, if you wanted to contain heat at a distance for fusion, you cross these longitudinal waves at a distance, and where they compress again they exchange inertia with the transverse. And so you can contain heat at a distance is actually the only physics of action at a distance. And that's what they call entanglement. Well, you know, some of, some, of the, some of the people listening to this might say, well, that's just a lot of jargon. 
Well, no, just no. Just explain we, in simple terms no, how no, well, a person like uh, uh, Caesar Brad can, can walk through an electromagnetic shield that's preventing access to people who aren't, who aren't vibrationally attuned or ready to be able to go into, say, a hall of records. That, that field effect he walked into is a, what's called a longitudinal array. It's a compression net. It's an array. And the presence of that array means waves at a dis from a distance are crossing symmetrically to maintain the compression there. And in conventional physics, that access to the axis at a distance is called entanglement. But entanglement perfected is what phase conjugation is. And that's how you make longitudinal coherence. So when you, it's called conjugate, implode your DNA, you create a conductivity at another level, which means literally, for example, after Daniel Brinkley survived lightning, he was a superconductor and everybody he touched, he could feel their whole emotions of their life. I'm sure he would have made it through that node, actually. Okay, maybe you've explained how it's done, but maybe what I'm trying to get at is why or what is it within people, within some people, that allows them to walk through some kind of electromagnetic shield that's preventing access to a hall of records or something, some advanced technologies, which filters out those that aren't, aren't ready yet, but some are ready. So what is it about people that makes them, what is it that makes a Caesar Brad ready to walk through a shield, a vibrational shield, as opposed to say your normal army or intelligence operative who just gets blocked or gets blown back by this shield or killed? A very appropriate question, and I'm sure a simplistic answer isn't going to be enough, but there are some useful metaphors oh, here. Give us a simplistic answer. We want that. <laughs> but when uh, Jean-Charles Moyen bilocated, to some extent, he was able to steer uh, in the array. Uh, when a lu lucid dreamer is at the stage of being able to uh, navigate in the lucid dreamer, for example, you look at your hand in the dream and the do loop compresses and makes you longitudinally coherent. That's the beginning of lucid dreaming. So compression is the ability to propagate in that array. And we, when we use what's called therify.net, it's plasma, and we replicably trigger lucid dreaming because we know what it is. So to be able to steer in a lucid dream is an excellent metaphor to look at your question, I would suggest. That those who that develop that ability, another way to think about it is the beehive cannot swarm without royal blood present and that is the navigator. That is the imploding DNA. So it, essentially, the reason lucid dreaming predicts who's going to take memory through death is that ability to steer, actually. Okay, well, uh, I have difficulty understanding how a person's ability to lucidly dream might allow one to pass through a frequency shield well, that would uh, be a block to those that aren't ready yet to be able to access. So yeah, let me propose my hypothesis and well, you, you respond. Just to say that frequency shield was a longitudinal array. Specifically what we have proven is what you propagate in when you lucid dream. Okay. All right. Well, uh, let, let me just propose uh, that someone like Caesar Brad, that he has information within his DNA that matches consciousness that is brought in through the soul incarnation process, which together the two of them generate a certain resonant frequency that is recognized by that frequency shield. And it says, oh, yep, you're okay. But this Intel operative who's 
been working for the CIA or for the Freemasons for who knows how long, the frequency shield says, you get close to me, buddy, I'm going to hit, you know, <laughs> I'm going to throw you back 100 feet. You know, those who could handle the Ark of the Covenant had a pretty much identical problem. And I do think that resistance to uh, high density charged propagation, which is the kind of superconductivity that results from human bliss, is measurable and is directly related to whether you create heat, literally resistance to spin as you approach. So simply put, those who've had a lot of bliss process, you know, when uh, Freddie Silva says, Lost Art of Resurrection was initiation into having near-death experiences. After near-death experiences, that conductivity is present. Okay, well, you didn't answer my question. <laughs> I think you, you have another well, go? Longitudinal coherence is reduced resistance. That's the short summary. Okay, but if, if there is something within a person's DNA that matches with the consciousness that inhabits that body, that that generates a resonant frequency field that is recognized by a frequency shield that is there to protect halls of records. Is it really just a matter of, you know, your your DNA, your consciousness is like a key that oh, yeah. is recognized by that shield? It just happens that we now know the exact frequency signature that enables your DNA to implode in bliss, brainwave frequencies signature and the heart frequency. It's a phase conjugate pump wave, literally. And so we know exactly what that frequency signature is that makes you permissive, literally no heat when you encounter the flame that does not consume. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to a different topic. And I wanted to kind of get your take on this because I'm sure you're very familiar with the Emerald Tablets that were channeled by Doriel where he talks about Toth and Jehuti and uh, the halls of Amenti. So, you know, wh wh what do you know about all of that? I had a, a chapter in my book, Earth Heart, was the modern day equivalent of the Emerald Tablets, according to my translator, editor, Vincent Bridges at the time. But basically, the key is that Jehuti was really called Tehuti, a DWD, which later was mistranslated the line of David, and that is the name of the royal line of Egypt. And that's who has returned with the nine. That's, I mean, that's the centerpiece of the story. And we joke that that's exactly the answer to every single one of Graham Hancock's confusion when he says, there was a hero in the past that taught civilization after the great flood. In every name he bumps up against, it's another name for Thoth Tehuti. So this is a very important guy. And yes, he gets around. Quetzalcoatl, Viracocha, you know, this it's the same guy, Viracana. So he was here to teach us not just the physics of life force, which is the caduceus, but he was here to teach us something much more specific, which is essentially what I would call the physics of how you have and make a soul. What enables you to lose a dream and take memory through death is that longitudinal coherence. The Egyptians called it the Ba from the Ka, Gurdjieff called it Kezjan, Tibetans call it rainbow light body. But it's a longitudinal coherence body. And if you don't make it, you don't make it. And that's that's I the deep lesson, I think, of Thoth in Emerald Tablets. And, it, you know, it was a green crystal. Oh, dear. Are you muted? Am I missing you? I'm sorry. Yes, that was uh, sorry. me. Uh, so in the Emerald Tablets, it talks about this place called uh, uh, the Halls of Amenti. Yeah. And it describes the Halls of Amenti as a place that Thoth has gone to uh, 
after he had to kind of leave Egypt, and, and presumably that was because there there was a time for him to to go into some kind of stasis or into hibernation, and that he will eventually return. And so in the Emerald Tablets, it talks about Toth Jehuti being in this stasis, in this hibernation, in this in the halls of Amenti, and will return. So I'm, I'm just wondering if if that process of being in, in hibernation in any way relates to some of the information that has been coming out recently about these giants in stasis chambers? Well, that's a very interesting. I, I mean, I think Elena Denan got it right, and I've done a lot of lectures with her, that um, the uh, return of the nine, uh, Thoth and Enki at Ganymede, is uh, the return of what he calls Adam Cadmon, which is the DNA recipe, what I, what I would call make a soul implode. And uh, one more little clue here that might help is, I think Akhenaten, his city, uh, where he made all the Egyptians mad because he kicked out their other gods, was named Amenti, actually. And uh, this was part of an array. Uh, it wasn't just about worshiping the sun god, uh, Enki Osiris at that time, whose bloodline was Akhenaten. Atun was basically Enki and Amun was obviously the priest that was Enlil and they were having their continuous conflict in Egypt as well. And if Osiris Enki did not inhabit the sun, literally squirt his plasma into the heart of the sun, then the Nile would not flood on time. And there's some very interesting physics there, which is literally that, uh, you know, the, the plasma of bliss is what makes it rain actually. So there's a whole, you know, if you're a pharaoh and you can't make the Nile flood on time, you're fired. And so after, you know, X number of hundred years, Tutankhamun was used to make rain because the yearning of the ancestor had made him a rainmaker. <laughs> you know, so there's a whole lovely story about Amenti here. And it's basically the center of a fractal array. And to inhabit Amenti is to inhabit, inhabit the center of the array. You could call it the underworld, but it's more than that. Okay, well, you, you come up with some really interesting concepts here. You know, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, what is it, the, the, your, your expression, uh, the plasma of bliss makes it rain? Yeah, well, yeah, the physics of rainmaking. You know, the reason a child can put a hole in a cloud every time if he's happy and standing in mud <laughs> is because their focus creates a centripetal force, which turns vapor into a droplet. It's called precipitation, but it's also been called Christos, <laughs> to crystallize. And so much of the story of Egypt was about the story of rainmaking, really. And we're doing rainmaking projects now in France here, so it's on my mind. But I, I did want to say that this, I think, could... Be... Well, hang on. I just wanted to kind of come to that, because I think I think that's a, an important point. Because uh, I know I, I read uh, uh, a couple of decades ago now, I think... Uh, uh, Greg Braden's book, The Isaiah Effect, where he, he talked about something very similar to what you were saying, that uh, when you are in a mode of celebration or maybe in a state of bliss, as you describe it, you can do things, you can make, you can make it rain. That this is in, and he gave the example of the American Indians, uh, their rainmaking dances, that in fact that they were celebrating the fact that it was raining, even though it was dry and it was desert conditions, but they were celebrating. And, and depending on how well they could kind of get into that state of bliss, they would literally make it rain. So is is that what you're kind of talking about? The, the physics of yeah. bliss can make it rain? Yeah, electrical engineers can talk about these things. You know, rolling thunder was tickling the underbelly of a black beetle. 
when he made rain, we later learned that the wiring in that black beetle was very fractal. And when Grandfather Dan's Hopi corn called the wind, and I was there, <laughs> that DNA was very fractal. It would only germinate if you sang the right song. It was the family pet. <laughs> so yes, they were calling the rain. Because basically, the plasma elementals, they start out small, but eventually they become the size of continents. And if your family ancestor has been walking the same line for a hundred generations, then the magnetic line across your continent is a family pet, as is true in Australia, for example. So yes, these, the ability to, to relate to the large plasma currents as they're part of your own body is part of the evolution of consciousness, clearly. And it's sad that our children today don't talk to the elementals because then they can't call the rain as well, for example. And tornadoes are out of control because the elementals are angry. <laughs> Okay, I want to come back to the uh, the, the emerald tablets because there was uh, some very interesting passages in there that I thought was kind of like fascinating when uh, compared to uh, some of the information from one of my army insider, JP, who says that he went into this underground cavern in Florida and he saw a sleeping giant. And I, and I talked about this in just my uh, recent uh, webinar so people can, can get it. It's going to come out if you if you didn't see it, but it's going to come out on Vimeo and Brideon. Um, and it, I talk about JP's experience in going into this underground, into this underground uh, civilization where he sees this sleeping giant and uh, he also sees this uh, tree, this uh, tree that is sucking up water and the water is cascading out of the out of the branches and the water has this kind of reju rejuvenative effect on those that drink it so it's kind of like literally the tree of life mm -hmm. yep. and and then later on elena danan uh she got information from the galactic federation that sleeping giant was none other than ningish zira or or tolf and and then we looked up well who is ningish zira ningish zira is oh. the uh the anunnaki god of the good tree or tolf so so this to to me i, I kind of put all that together and what the what the emerald tablets say and it's what it all kind of leads to is that well is the halls of amenti or one of the halls of amenti under florida where this sleeping giant is being protected by this by this civilization of ant people uh that are there protecting the giant and the tree of life well you know people seem to agree that the word anunnaki means ant friend which was the Hopi name for their ancestors, and uh, the Aboriginals in Australia had an ancient tradition of the nine-foot-tall red-haired giants, and even in Zor Valley, New York, we had that legend, and uh, we know those those lineages were, were giants in their day, and all of those, most of those indigenous tribes, the Iroquois, had a legend of Viracocca Quetzalcoatl, the tall, uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, which is the giant, literally, which is literally Thoth, Hermes, which is probably literally who Veracoca and Quetzalcoatl was. And yes, at the time, as Elena, I think, got right, when Enki basically had to leave because <laughs> Enlil got too messy, uh, that his chief team here had to go into stasis. I think that's correct. And they would have returned from stasis at longitudinal nodes, definitely, the array, the Amenti array, as it were. And uh, so it, there would make some logical sense. Actually, you could measure whether that cave was harmonic inclusive, the way Karatkov measured where Kogi made phone calls to ancestors 
because clearly that ability to pres preserve is directly related to what you call a medbed, which is a conjugate node, which is not just stabilizing, but rejuvenating, literally time reversal. Yeah, because I know the uh, the Emerald Tablets are very, very popular, and people like to, you know, have generated a huge following because of their interpretations of the Emerald Tablets. So I wanted to kind of like spend a little bit more time in precisely understanding that, given the information I've been getting, you've been getting uh, from people like Elena, JP, and, and others. So uh, in the Halls of Amentia, it talks about uh, that uh, Toth leaves the body in hibernation and then inhabits, in, incarnates in uh, human bodies, you know, disseminating the wisdom, uh, but then at the right time will go back to the halls of Amenti and return. So that kind of suggests, as we uh, kind of like in the case of uh, Ningish Zida in this location under Florida, that he his physical body or his avatar is there in stasis, but his consciousness has incarnated and he's living somewhere on earth and doing things but that now the awakening process is, is beginning. So this brings me to the idea, well, are the Halls of Amenti just a reference, in fact, to these different locations where these uh, chief Anunnaki scientists, like I think there were 12 that uh, Prince Ea or Enki identified to Elena and said that 12, there were 12 Anunnaki scientists left behind, uh, I think five were killed or captured uh, by the deep state, but seven are left. Uh, Ningish Zida is under Florida. That uh, Aruna is under uh, Nippur, the city of Nippur in um, uh, in Iraq. So, so when we talk about the halls of Amenti, what we're talking about are are these underground locations in places like Florida, Florida, uh, Iraq. I think another place is under. Uh, Slovenia, where there's a, a king, uh, King Matthias, the legend there of a of a giant King Matthias, and all of these are protected by civilizations, and there are stasis chambers, and so these giants are lying in stasis chambers. So essentially, when we're talking about the halls of Amenti, according to the Emerald Tablets, what we're talking about are these are these different locations around the planet where these un chief Anunnaki scientists were in hibernation, waiting for the right time to wake up, and and then they would come forward, and we are on the verge of that. Am I correct? Am I in the right direction, you think? Well, I really like that story, and lots of it makes sense to me. In many parts of it, I feel a personal connection to Thoth, by the way. But I think we could comment scientifically on what is meant by a stasis chamber in very competent electrical terms. For example, it has been speculated, you know, thousands, perhaps millions of people come to Sam Osmanovich's pyramid in Bosnia because they get rejuvenation. Well, it has been speculated that the chamber in the Great Pyramid was literally a stasis chamber. Namely, when you have your initiation experience, you need to be able to leave your body and, and it can't rot while you're gone. It's very simple. Well, what electric field prevents your body from rotting? You know, there's a uh, thousands of year old Egyptian tradition of mummification, we now understand a lot more about the physics that the uh, uh, natron salt was a conjugator which capacitively imploded. And so the body, as the reason mummy powder was served in every pharmacy in Europe for 300 years because of its rhodium iridium gold powder content, they weren't eating the gold. No, their flesh became 
because of the stasis regeneration of the capacitance of the mummy technology. So they could do that on a large scale. They could make stasis chambers where successful death and a leverage point from which to lucid dream was possible, that still point. So a massive longitudinal node would be my name for that, absolutely. And that's clearly what Thoth was up to. He would have a lot of experience because that's exactly what you have to do to make a pyramid work is make a very high pressure longitudinal node. So he would be, he'd be the whiz at that. Makes total sense to me. I'm with you. <laughs> okay, great. All right. Well, thank, thank you for that uh, answer. Oh, and now I want to come finally to Jean-Charles Moyen. I mean, he has been uh, relaying his story about uh, teleporting to different locations. He's, he's, uh, uh, he said that he's teleported to uh, four different space arcs on the, on the planet, uh, one in Tibet, one in Antarctica, one in Japan, and one in Hawaii. Uh, but in two of those cases, uh, his teleportation experiences to Japan and teleportation experience to Antarctica, he says, and Elena Danan corroborates, that she saw him, that she was teleported yeah. to the same location it by Thorhan and that her position and her, she was teleported there to be a witness to him to kind of like corroborate those ex teleportation experiences. So, you know, that's one form of corroboration for Jean-Charles. That's very important that he can teleport, that you have an eyewitness. Now, you did uh, a scientific experiment with Jean-Charles where you measured his brain waves when he would try to simulate the teleportation. So can just explain and walk us through exactly what happened with that, that experiment and your confirmation of Jean-Charles' ability. Yeah, you can see the results of our measurements with Jean-Charles at flameinmind.com slash lucidbrain. And it was really quite simple. Jean-Charles was something of a hero. He was very dedicated. And when he asked for a way to measure, we told him, well, you're going to have to buy the brainwave transmitter, which is the flameinmind.com system. And he did, and he did his homework beautifully. And basically, just at the moment, when he felt he was about to teleport, the brainwave frequency signature, we had a, it's, you always start with the alpha, it's the main peak around eight hertz. And then there's a cascade, alpha, beta, up to gamma. And that's a cascade, it's like a caduceus cascade. And in that cascade, at that moment, he had very strong, a golden ratio series and an octave series. The octave series corresponds with telepathy, golden ratio with bliss. And you need both in order to be stable. We knew about this in the past because we've been teaching kids to see without their eyes. You can also see that at flameandmind.com. And the kids, the moment where they enter that bliss trance where they can always see without their eyes, uh, the brainwave signature is exactly the same. But Jean-Charles' brainwave signature was the same cascade, but much, much higher amplitude. So he was making a massive implosion, except we had to turn down the gain on the brainwave preamp. Anyway... Remember, Jean-Charles says, just before I teleported, I see in one eye where I've been and the other eye where I'm going. And we know, know electrically what happened. He literally turned inside out. And so that implosive compression drives him into the longitudinal ray, which is the physics of all stargates and portals and action at a distance. It's interesting that in his first travels, he almost always went to the beach. <laughs> that's a place that's longitudinal permissive. And when he went to those arcs, the exact same is true. He would not be able to teleport to the center of an aluminum building very successfully. No, he could probably get a bit scrambled eggs on the way. No, you got to choose these nodes very carefully, the coordinates for your teleportation. 
And the ability to steer when you do that requires a lot of evolution. But yes, we, we believe we understand the physics of this very well. And it, again, starts with the ability to navigate in a lucid dream. I remember him saying, well, maybe I better check if I have my passport. <laughs> so the turning inside out is instructive because at the center point, it's called scintillation in John D's study, which is the longitudinal coupling moment. That's where the implosive compression propels you down that array. That's the physics of teleportation for sure. Okay, so the, the study that you did uh, and the measurements that you, you conducted confirm or corroborate that Jean-Charles was being able to access certain mental abilities that well, he's... would enable him to do something remarkable like a teleportation experience. So, so in, at the end of the day, would you say what you did would be empirical evidence supporting his claim of being able to teleport? We can say for sure that he generated massive unusual, huge brainwave coherence, for sure, which correlates to all these stories perfectly. And we think we understand really what's happening, that you, you're imploding down into the node of a longitudinal array, for sure. So yes, we believe we, you know, we have measured how it works. In fact, there's many, many clues of how you build uh, the longitudinal array to make a Stargate portal. And I did a lecture for Elena on that subject. In summary, our Therify.net plasma working for rejuvenation in 25 countries, the real medbed. Um, at higher amplitudes, that's what a Stargate portal is, evidenced by the fact that we can replicably trigger lucid dreaming. Okay, well, I wonder if uh, the idea of a star tetrahedron in any way kind of like um, illustrates what you've just said is being able to create this kind of uh, geometric pattern of frequencies and thought forms. Is is that something that would enable you to kind of like uh, teleport? You know, in, in terms of uh, you, you talked about some kind of golden mean ratio yeah. in Jean-Charles brainwaves that you were able to identify in generating those ratios. Was he in fact kind of like unconsciously or maybe consciously creating something like this to be able to teleport. Yeah, you know, kids do this intuitively when they learn to remote view and we train them to see without their eyes and suddenly they're seeing their ancestors and the parents freak out. But the the, the star tetra is tetracubic. And if you look at the center of our star mother kit, there's a tetra cube in there, a little hard to see, but there's a cube in there. So it starts with the cube, which is an octave cascade but that is not implosive, but it's necessary for stability for the star tetra visualization is useful to start. However, that cube then actually tilts 32 degrees, the chin angle of the Sphinx, and embeds in what's called dodeca, which is a dodeca here and a dodeca here. And that generates golden ratio, and that is implosive. And when you generate both, the harmonic tensors of your brainwave become a stairway to heaven, literally implosive. And that's what he made. Octave cascade, which is star tetracube, plus embedded inside dodeca, you know, Merkaba, Ezekiel's wheels, and the, the connection between both cascades. Remember, octave cascades identified telepathy, but they did not identify bliss. The golden ratio cascades identify bliss, but they're not stable without the cubic. So when you put both together, then you can have the ability to stabilize and literally navigate when you travel. That's why studying these ratios in brainwaves is so profound because it's literally, you know, when the kids see without their eyes, which John, John Charles can do that, but more, when they see without their eyes, they all tell the same story. Oh, I saw a little vortex pinhole 
appear inside my head. Remember, they, their eyes are completely covered. They can't see. And then they say, I can see down that vortex like a tube and I can see through it like an eyeball. And then the vortex grows. What enables you to bring that plasma vortex to a point called an eyeball is those harmonic tensors, that brainwave frequency, the cube inside the dodeca. And that's what gives you the inner muscle to squeeze that plasma vortex. And so now we know not only why focused attention compresses charge, we know exactly what you take with you for out of body remote viewing and when you die. We know what consciousness is, it's a plasmic vortex which can survive outside your body under the right conditions. Well, well, I just want to give you this uh, opportunity, Dan, to direct people to where they need to go if they want to kind of like learn more about what you've been discussing, uh, maybe buy your books or attend any kind of uh, webinars or anything like that you're doing. So where do people go? <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Well, you know, our YouTube channel, Dan Winter Fractal Field, is nearing 3 million views, 300 films as well. Uh, main website, fractalfield.com, flameandmind.com, fractalu.com, and therify.net is our plasma tech. The imploder.com is our water vortex tech from Schauberger. We have a lot going on, and uh, a lot of people are working with us. We, we try to have the more advanced science to help people who are having spiritual experience understand them with serious science. So thank you. Well, I want to thank you, Dan, for uh, sharing an incredible amount of information. I mean, I know for a lot of people it may, may have been difficult understanding it all, but I, I, I do know that uh, people speak very highly of Dan and his experiences go back uh, five decades now, and he's uh, worked with some of the leading lights in these uh, fields. So definitely worth diving into his information and uh, learning more. So so thank you, Dan, for all you do and for your support of uh, getting to the truth about the extraordinary claims of people like Jean-Charles and, and Elena Denard. Thank you. Well, thank you. This has been a great opportunity. You know, we didn't get to the slides of the physics of the Star Trek physics, but three of the last films on our YouTube channel are entitled, entitled Star Trek physics. So you can get to the slideshows, which is really how these vortex work and warp and impulse power and all that stuff. So the stories are there. And we're happy to be part of Dr. Sala's global audience. Thank you so much, Dr. Michael. <laughs> you have been listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit Exopolitics Today. Dot com.